your way to Exodus chapter 26. And uh, yeah, like I say, we're going to look at some, some fun stuff. And, and tonight we're looking at what the tabernacle consisted of. Here's kind of a, a glimpse into the tabernacle. And we started this last week in chapter 25 is Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's uh, been giving you know the the law, and now God is instructing him in all these things that are going to be taking place for the worship of the nation of Israel to their God. And so uh, Moses is getting all these plans and instructions. Right now, we're looking at the the tabernacle. Last week, we saw some of the furnishings of the tabernacle. When you go into the tabernacle on your left, you got the um, lampstand on the right, the table of showbread. We talked about those. Um, Last week in chapter 25, we talked about the Ark of the Testimony that sits in the Holy of Holies, um, the far room past the veil. And so um, we looked at the significance of those things last week. Well, we're going to continue to look at uh, tonight now just kind of the actual structure of the tabernacle, what it consisted of. Now, remember, the tabernacle was really just a glorified tent. So for those of you that like camping, you're going to feel maybe right at home here tonight. But uh, a tent is really a neat illustration because it was one thing that every culture and group would be able to relate to, especially in this day. This was something that was very familiar to them. And tonight we're going to look at the setup of the tabernacle. And there are some cool things that we get to learn from these curtains and coverings of the tabernacle that chapter 26 starts out with. This is tempting to just kind of, you know, roll over it, skip through it, but we're going to take our time looking at some of these things and, and some neat illustrations and, and pictures we can glean from this here uh, in the tabernacle. So look at chapter 26, verse 1. It says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of each curtain, four cubits, and every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. So as we see here, the tabernacle would be overlaid with various coverings. First of all, it's going to have these inner curtains. These are the curtains that we're talking about right now here in the first part of chapter 27. There would be 10 curtains that would make up kind of the, the structure of the tabernacle. There'd be two sections, it says, of five curtains each, all right? And those curtains would all be kind of woven together. And then those two sections of five curtains each would be brought together. We'll look at that in a second. But the first covering is the one that you would see when you come into the tabernacle. That's what everybody that's, and it's only the priests that are in the tabernacle, but this is what you begin to see. And it's the most beautiful and the most artistic of the coverings of the tabernacle. It's there that the people, the worshipers, the priests in the tabernacle are seeing and, and only them. Beautiful to behold. And we'll talk a bit about the significance of that. And so the curtain length, it says, is, is 28 cubits. All right, a cubit being about 18 inches, the measurement of a, you know, uh, a normal man's elbow to the tip of his finger, 18 inches. Uh, mine would be 14 inches, that's, but a normal man, 18 inches from a elbow to the, so that's a cubit. So 28 cubits then is 42 uh, feet long is this curtain, the length of it. And then it's four cubits means it's six uh, feet wide, each of these curtains, all right? And, and it's interesting, it lays out the colors of it. The curtain consisted of four colors, fine linen, white, okay? Fine linen is white, blue, purple, scarlet. And it's interesting because number four kind of really reminds us of the four gospels. And it's in the four gospels that we get some beautiful pictures of how Jesus is portrayed. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is seen as the king of kings. So fittingly, the color purple representing that. Mark, Jesus as the suffering servant, scarlet, that color of, of, of red, crimson red, and that, and that picture of sacrifice, suffering servant. Luke, he's pictured as Jesus as the son of man, all right? And that would be pictures that, again, perfect, sinless man. So pictured in white, John sees Jesus as the son of God, as deity. We have the picture of blue from that. Now they have 
artistic designs of cherubim on these curtains that are, are uh, wrapped around the tabernacle structure. Now remember, cherubim were seen around the throne of God. Revelation chapter four, verse six to seven mentions the four living creatures. Four living creatures in Revelation. Ezekiel also gets that uh, same kind of picture of the, the four living creatures, which is cherubim. And it's cherubim that's on this first covering over the tabernacle. What's interesting is that these cherubim or the four living creatures were pictured with the face of um, a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. And that's also represented in the four gospels because then... Jesus, the king of kings, pictured as, again, the lion, the king of the jungle, in a sense. Mark, Jesus as the suffering servant, pictured as an ox. And then Luke sees him as the son of man, perfect and pure. So he had the face of a man on one of those four living creatures. And then John sees Jesus as the son of God, deity, pictured in blue, which is, again, the, the heavens, the sky, you know, eagle soaring in the heavens. Now we saw last week, remember last week, we talked about how the tribes would all be camped around the tabernacle. The book of Numbers gives us all the, the arrangement of the tribes in number. And so uh, stretching out from the tabernacle where it sat would be three tribes, three sets of tribes on each side of the tabernacle. What did it picture? The cross, right? Wasn't that awesome? But each of those tribes were represented by one tribe, kind of the chief tribe of those three with a banner, a flag that represented that tribe. And each of those tribes were represented then by Judah on one side. And that flag of Judah was the lion. Ephraim was the ox, Reuben, a man, and Dan, an eagle. So again, we see just this picture now within the colors just that were used in this inner curtain over the tabernacle four representing the gospels and the very picture of the gospels, again, identified in the very cherubim that were on the curtains and the campment of the, the tribes around the tabernacle, just all kind of blending together here and the Lord bringing this incredible kind of truth and reality for us. Now, again, going in the tabernacle was like stepping before the, the throne of God and seeing this heavenly scene all around you. That's kind of what, what we see here at the tabernacle is that God is bringing people back to this awareness of his presence and that invitation in. Now, of those four colors, interestingly, we have scarlet thread. And there's that kind of scarlet thread that we see all the scripture, which points to Jesus. Now, that's an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word, uh, tola, tola in Hebrew for scarlet. And it's translated two ways, scarlet, and worm. <laughs> you go, what? How do those two kind of mix and mesh share? Well, in this day, if people wanted to dye a piece of clothing or cloth a red color, they would make this dye from the dried body of this female uh, worm. Now, what's real interesting is that in Psalm 22, that prophetic psalm of our suffering Messiah, it reads in verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? And then down in Psalm 22, verse six, it says, but I am a worm. Hebrew word tola, same as scarlet. I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. You see, Jesus that, that Psalm 22 is speaking of Jesus and the sacrifice he'd make. In fact, he repeats that there on the cross. But Jesus became like that scarlet worm and he shed his blood. But even more amazing is this, that female worm will climb a tree when it's ready to give birth, when it's ready to have its young and fix itself upon the trunk of a tree. And its young will then be hatched and protected under the body of that worm. And that adult worm after giving birth will die and this scarlet fluid will stain its body in the surrounding wood. But then after three days, that scarlet fluid will dry and become like white flakes that will fall to the ground. Isaiah 118 says, come now and let us reason together. It says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Praise the Lord for that. So we see a scarlet thread here within the tabernacle and that scarlet thread weaving all through scripture, which is all, again, scripture pointing to Jesus, ultimately the work that Jesus would do for us on the cross. Well, verse three 
of, uh, of Exodus 26, verse three. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the salvage of one set. And likewise, you shall do on the outer edge of the outer curtain of the second set. 50 loops you shall make in the one curtain and 50 loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain. That is on the end of the second set. That the loops may be clasped to one another and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. So here's um, a, a little depiction of the tabernacle and this first curtain that's placed over top of it with the blue, purple, um, what color am I missing? Blue, scarlet, the one that we were just talking about. Blue, purple, scarlet, white linen. So it's wrapped around. And again, you'll see how now again, each curtain, there's 10 curtains. Each of them come together, make a, a group of five. And then there's another group of five and they're joined together. They all have these loops on the edges with these uh, clasps now that join these uh, curtains together now and make one large kind of covering around it. And that would, um, these gold clasps would bring it all together where it would make now a 60 foot wide and, and again, 42 foot longer or high uh, covering. Now the 60 foot width, again, 10 curtains, each six feet wide, then enable the curtains to cover the top of the tabernacle, which was 45 uh, feet long and the back 15 feet high. The 42 feet, the length of each curtain extended over the top of the tabernacle and down each side to within 18 inches of the ground there. Now it's interesting because 10 curtains, 10, familiar number in scripture as the number of human responsibility, 10 commandments, the law. And this joining process is an interesting one because these curtains were sewn together, but at 50 loops, and clasps. 50 equals number of salvation. Every 50 years was the year of jubilation where all debts, right, uh, were canceled. And the two groups of five pictures, uh, the law for us. We were unable to come together. We were separated from God because we had broken the law of God. We needed help. We needed a work of salvation. And notice, it was blue yarn for loops, verse four and then gold clasps that join those loops together to bring each of the, the five sets of curtains together. See, salvation is a work from God originating in heaven. Blue, picture of heaven. Loops are circular. It's an eternal work that's not meant to be broken. Amen for that. So we see this great work of God being accomplished for us. And then the second covering, are these uh, goat skins. Look at verse seven of chapter 26. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of each curtain, four cubits and the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves and you shall double over that sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge again of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps, put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover. So here's these goat skins now. Uh, let's see if that, okay. Goat skins that are gonna go over that inner curtain now and be that kind of outside, uh, one of the layers on the outside now. So that covering is 45 feet long, again, six feet wide. And there were to be five curtains coupled together and then six coupled together. And then they would be joined together with loops and now not gold clasps, but bronze clasps. And you see those clasps there in the middle. Now, this covering of goats there would not be seen from within or without, except for that piece that was doubled over in the front. 
And it's interesting because it's a goat that was most often used in their sin offerings. Remember on the Day of Atonement, two goats were were brought forth, one for the sacrifice and the other where the high priest would lay their hands upon that goat and confess the sins of Israel and that goat would be released into the wild and that was known as the scapegoat. So God in his grace sent Jesus now to be our scapegoat. He bore our sins. He received our judgment and what did Jesus do? He carried our sins away that we might be spared and saved completely. So this goat, the, the, the curtains of goat, there's five curtains grouped together, six curtains grouped together. Interestingly, five is the number of grace. Six is the number of man. Equal those together, 11. 11 is the number of disorder. We see the bronze class, which is judgment. See, though we were out of order with God, we deserve judgment. God has shown grace to humanity. He's redeemed us by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Again, what a great blessing we've received in him. Verse 14, we see the third and the fourth coverings now. It says, you shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed in red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. So here's now over top of that, you got ram skins, and then you've got badger skins that are going over top of that. Interesting that those ram skins were dyed in red because it's only through the blood of Christ that we can have our blackest sin covered and darkest stain removed. Again, a picture for us there. Now the badger skins are uh, an uncertain hide of an animal. It's also translated as seal porpoise or dolphin skins. The NIV translates it as sea cows or dugong, like a, a manatee, dugong, dugong, I don't know how to say it, but like a manatee. So we're not sure exactly what is being uh, referenced here, but it's a, a type of skin that's gonna be uh, going over top of the tabernacle. So very interesting. Now, hopefully you're not bored with all of this. You will be after this section because we're going to talk about the boards of the tabernacle now. Look at verse 15. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. Verse 18. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards and there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards. And you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for uh, both of them. They shall be for the two corners. Verse 25, so there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. So being blessed so far? All right. Boards of the tabernacle, 15 feet high, two feet three inches wide and there were there were 20 boards on each side of the tabernacle and they're kept in place by these two tenons or literally like hands right where they were these you know joints that would go into these silver sockets that formed the foundation all right and at the back end which was the westward side of the tabernacle there were to be six boards along with an extra board on each of the corner just kind of securing uh, all the parts together here. And these boards were not to touch the ground. Again, they sat in the silver sockets and this kept the tabernacle level and secure on uneven ground. An interesting note, because silver is the metal associated with redemption and, and payment for sin. We see it in Exodus 21, Leviticus 5, verse 15. We see it in Numbers 18, verse 16. And, and we stand today on the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that he's accomplished for us. He's again, paid the penalty for our sin. He's, he's bought us back, uh, bought us out of slavery and redeemed us 
for himself. And it's that which keeps us secure now and stable before the Lord. And it's by his work that we can be kept undefiled in this world, just as those boards would not touch the ground, they'd sit secure and solid in those silver sockets, picturing that redemptive work of the Lord that he's secured for us as well. And then those boards would be all held in place by uh, the bars now of the tabernacle. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, and you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. So these bars were to go through the boards, the length of each side, linking each board together as kind of one piece. And these bars provided structural integrity and they kept the boards straight and solid. You know, it's interesting that the believer today is not to be a lone ranger going at it alone, right? This example that we see with the boards and the bars kind of joining everything together shows us the unity and the bond that we're to have as believers as the church we're to walk in unity together in and through Christ and we as a church are are called to keep one another accountable to support one another to encourage one another to stay on the straight and narrow that's why staying in fellowship is so vital that's why the, the church is important you can hear a lot of Christians today saying oh no I don't I don't go to church I don't really need a church. I've been hurt by the church. I don't, want to, I don't want to be a part of a church. No, I'm good with God. And they're going about it as a lone ranger. It's never been the intent that God has for us. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, familiar passage, guys. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. So how important it is to be together, stir one another up, strengthen and support one another. And goes on to say, or it says there in verse 30, as we read already, and he shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern. So remember Moses was there on the mountain. He's receiving these instructions according to the pattern that he's given. And we believe been given a glimpse of the heavenlies, seeing what's taking place in the heavenlies, this very throne of God in this very kind of tabernacle type setting right there in the heavenlies. Hebrews 8 verse 5 says, who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So they were a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, very things that we see in and around the throne of God. Very cool. And then verse 31, we talk about the veil. It says, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony, the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. So again, that veil in the tabernacles, uh, I'll bring up that, let's see here. So that veil that you see, the inner dividing curtain separated the holy place where priests could go into, separated from the most holy place or the holy of holies that the, the high priest, only the high priest could go into. And then we know he could only go into it one day of the year, Yom Kippur. And it's here where God said he would meet with him. Remember there on the mercy seat, remember our study last time here in, in uh, Exodus chapter 25, that God says, I'll meet with you there on the mercy seat. Where? 
inside the tabernacle of the law, the demands of the law that we were unable to meet, but praise be to the Lord, he provides mercy for us. And he meets us in that place of, of mercy and grace. Well, God says he's gonna meet them there. And likewise, as, as only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, one man on one day was given access. As Jesus was on the cross and he gave up his spirit, what happened there in the temple? The veil was torn and it was torn from top to bottom. It was a work of God. There's not a work of man. This is not somebody trying to rig the system. This was a work of God saying, the way has been opened for you. I'm providing now access because of one man who's provided the perfect sacrifice for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 23 says this. I'll see if I can find it here now. Hebrews 10, 19 and 23. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us, notice this, through his veil, which is his flesh. And having a high priest now, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Aren't you thankful for what Jesus has accomplished for us? Dying on the cross, his, his very flesh being rent, being uh, torn and providing now access for us to God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith now through what Jesus has done. And then we see verse 36 now. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So there are five pillars for the screen on the door. Again, five is the number of what? Grace, thank you. See, the way into God's presence is always by his grace, isn't it? And notice as we work our way through the tabernacle in this chapter, we see the directions are given from the inside working outward. And it was a beautiful work on the inside while the outside, ah, like badger skins, nothing really to behold. Nothing that would draw you to go, wow, that's beautiful. But when you're inside, you go, this is majestic. This is awe-inspiring. And, and it is with us, God, God works on us from the inside. Works on us from the inside out. Man likes to judge according to the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's also something for us to realize the nature of many people who look into the life of Jesus. Oftentimes, at first glance, there may not be a lot that stands out or is appealing to an onlooker. Remember, they're often spiritually discerned too. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But we who are in Christ, who have tasted and seen how good God is, we beheld his glory and we get to look and go, God, you are awesome to behold. You are beautiful. You are, are just so wonderful just to sit in your presence, God. Those standing in the tabernacle would have seen something quite different than those standing afar. Those inside see the real beauty. Second Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. So what a wonderful picture it is here, the, the priest going into the tabernacle and seeing just the beauty surrounding it. The, the gold that was all around the furnishings uh, of uh, the items in the tabernacle, the the beautiful artistic design in that curtain that they would see from the inside. They would see such beauty. And so it is oftentimes for the person that comes to faith in Jesus. They may be looking from the outside going, what's that all about? 
But the moment you come in <laughs> and you, you begin to experience that presence of the Lord, you begin to see the beauty that you've been missing out on. Now, what's interesting too, and I wanna uh, read a bit from um, Sailhammer's book, The Pentateuch as, as Narrative. He says this, and this is kind of fascinating to just see the kind of flow here as well. But he says, just as the creation narrative portrayed the heavens and earth as the arena in which God would have fellowship with humans, so here the tabernacle is pictured as the means of restoring humanity's lost fellowship with God. Thus, the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 to 30 have several significant similarities. The first area of similarity is the overall structure of the two accounts. It's well known, for example, that the creation account in Genesis is structured around a, a series of seven acts of creation. Each of these acts is marked by the divine speech saying, and God said. In the same way, the Torah's instruction for the building of the tabernacle is divided into seven acts, each introduced by the divine speech and the Lord said. We saw that in Exodus chapter 25, uh, verse one. It says, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, we'll see it again in Exodus 30, uh, verse 11, verse 17, verse 20, and, and so I won't get into all that, but we'll see it seven times throughout the, uh, the whole instructions for the building of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is portrayed then as a reconstruction of God's good creation. Moreover, the Garden of Eden is described in ways similar to that of the tabernacle. For example, both contained pure gold and precious jewels and were guarded by cherubim. There's cherubim all around the tabernacle. At the close of the creation account in Genesis 2, verse 1 and 3, was the reminder that God rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath. So also, in the account of the building of the tabernacle, the last instruction is the reminder to observe the Lord's Sabbath there in Exodus chapter 31, verse 12 to 18. Salhammer goes on to say, in the Genesis account of creation, humanity was made according to a specific pattern, that is, according to the image of God. In the building of the tabernacle, the whole as well as the parts were to be made according to the pattern that God had shown Moses, just as we saw here in, um, in verse 30. Now, in the Genesis uh, account of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, it's followed by the account of the fall, Genesis 3, right? At the center of the fall account is human disobedience of God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in late manner at the close of the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, there's also a fall narrative. The account of Israel's sin with the golden calf, just as in the Genesis account, in the account of the golden calf, Israel's disobedience to the divine command resulted in the breaking of God's covenant. So we see just kind of a fascinating illustration and, and kind of flow from creation. And what God is seeking to restore, what was lost there in Genesis, God is seeking to restore here uh, in and through the tabernacle. Well, chapter 27, how are we doing? Chapter 27, we're doing good. We're on track. We're gonna roll through this here. Chapter 27, verse one, we look at now the, the bronze altar or the altar of burnt offerings there in the courtyard of the tabernacle. So we've seen the tabernacle. We've seen the, the items in the tabernacle. We've seen the structure of the tabernacle. Now we're gonna get into a bit more of the, the courtyard, some of the items there around here. So the altar burnt offering says in verse one, chapter 27, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. And you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a great ford, a network of bronze. And on the network, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. 
So the bronze altar, like we said, sat in the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. And interestingly, it would be the first thing that you'd come upon when you'd walk into the tabernacle or into the courtyard of the tabernacle. And that's an important and necessary place to approach first, isn't it? Because nobody can approach God except by a sacrifice. We know today that that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through him, as Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's through his sacrifice, like we saw in in Hebrews already, by which we're able to approach God now. And so this altar is the first place you come to. It's a needed and important place to draw upon first as you come before the presence of God. Now that altar was large. It was seven and a half feet uh, long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet high. And that large size would really confront the worshiper, again, with that large gap that there was between them and God. They had, had broken fellowship with God because of sin and something needed to take place. The only way into his presence, again, was by way of sacrifice. And that altar was covered in what? Bronze. Again, bronze being the the symbol of judgment in scripture. Sin needed to be judged, needed to be atoned for. We cannot approach God God by any kind of bargaining of our own, thinking, well, Lord, I've really been doing my best to live up to your your standards or your law. I've been going to church a lot. I've even told somebody about you, Jesus. Like that's gotta count for something. We can't approach God based on what we think we can bring to the table. It's only by what, Jesus has done for us. Only Jesus accomplishes that work of satisfying God's judgment. That's why we need to be wholly surrendered and consecrated to him. And this altar would have rings where poles would be placed through it. Because again, this whole tabernacle and every part of the tabernacle was to be moved. It was to be portable. And so now this, this altar had rings with poles that would sit in it and it would be able to be carried about. In other words, there would always be a provision made for sacrifice. There's always time to come and receive that work of Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is we see that this altar, verse two, had horns on each of the corners and the horns were used to keep the sacrifice in place at times, to tie it down. Psalm 118 verse 27 says, God is the Lord and he has given us light. It says, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. It's interesting as we look at Jesus' sacrifice, he was one that was bound and tied. Interesting though, when the soldiers came to arrest him, they said they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth, by which he said, I am he, and it tells that they all fell backwards. They were in a sense paralyzed with fear. Jesus could have left. He could have been free, but he stayed. And he asked again, hey guys, wake up. Whom are you seeking? The soldiers eventually got up and they bound him, as it says in John 18, verse 12. Later on, Jesus would be bound to the cross as they crucified him. And my point is this, Jesus died for you, not out of reluctance, but out of love. It was cords of love that bound Jesus to the altar at Calvary, to the cross. He could have saved himself. He could have called upon angels to set him free, 10,000 angels to rescue him and free him from that suffering. But he was on a mission motivated by love. He didn't come down from the cross until we could go up and be experienced in the light that he has for us. Jesus was motivated by love for you specifically. It's a hard concept to grasp. We think, well, we know Jesus died for the sins of the world, but think about this. He had you on his mind and he was kept on that cross out of love for you to pay that penalty that we all owed. That's love. Revelation 13, 8. 
It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life for the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's remarkable because Jesus was not just crucified for a few hours on a Friday afternoon. He was slain from the foundation of the world. Each person was required to bring an animal as an offering for their sin and they would lay their hands upon it as a way of confessing their sin. Now for a disobedient nation, that's a lot of sacrifice. So you begin to see the magnitude here of our Lord and Savior's actions for us on the cross that he died to set us all free, bound by love. And then we read in Romans 12, verse one and two, or verse one, I should say, I beseech you brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies now a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So speaking of those horns of the altar and tying down the sacrifice, it's what we're called to do with our own lives. It's funny how we can, you know, sing that great hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And we place it on the altar. Here we are, Lord, we're yours. And a week goes by, we're like, Lord, hold on, just got to grab that again. I got some stuff I need to do that I don't think you really want to be a part of. And we go off and we kind of take our sacrifice back and we try to live again in our own means or efforts or our own desires we're called to lay our life down as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, may be bound upon that altar to God. Not, not out of duty, but again, out of love. Out of love for what Jesus has first of all done for us. That's the beauty of serving him. It's not forced or out of a, a feeling of we have to, but more so that we get to. As John 419, 1 John 4.19 says, that we love him because he first loved us. It's always out of response for what Jesus has done. If you're doing something because you think this is what you have to do, or you're trying to get something in return, then you simply become the initiator and God the responder. Rather, we have to look at it and say, God's the great initiator. He's shown us his love. He bound himself out of love for us as a sacrifice so that we can now come out of love and respond to that great sacrifice he made for us as we present our bodies a living sacrifice. Well, verse nine, the court of the tabernacle. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle for the south side. There shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side and it's 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze. And the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits and the hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. So here's again, just the, the courtyard, courtyard curtains we've got now, uh, bronze bases. Um, you see kind of what we've just been laying out here, the courtyard was 150 feet, you know, long by 75 feet wide. That's the, the size of that place. Not huge yet. Interesting, there were approximately 3 million Jews at this time. A courtyard doesn't seem to be too accommodating, does it? It kind of makes our flow on a Sunday morning in the foyer look like a picnic, doesn't it? But it, it seems that not too many people were all congregating at once. It's kind of like what we read in Exodus 20. Verse 21, where it says, so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. It, it could be that not many people in God's foresight or foreknowledge that not many people would be coming in as needed or, or should, or else it was all timed in such a way. But understand something, access has been given. And access has been given to us. May we come boldly, and frequently and draw near before the throne of grace, this great privilege that we have as believers in and through Jesus Christ. 
And then we see in verse 16 that the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine um, woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. Verse 17, all the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the height five cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So into the courtyard, only one way, only through the gate. Just as today, there's only one way to God. People love to say, oh, no, 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 there's many ways to God. Oh, we'll all, we'll all end up before God. Hey, that's true. We will all end up before God. But there are many people that are going to be standing on the wrong side in that there's only one way by which we gain entrance into the very kingdom of God and, and into heaven. Just as there's one way into the tabernacle here, it's through the gate. And it's interestingly, Jesus himself says in John 10, verse nine, I am the door. He's the only way. That's what he's stating there. There's only one way to the Father. And interesting, this gate was on the east side. The way into God's presence is being restored again as, as it was formerly blocked off in the Garden of Eden, which was also on the east side, Genesis 3, verse 24. So it says, he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man was blocked out from this beautiful place that God intended by which they might walk in fellowship with God and enjoy the very presence of God. They were blocked out, but now, once again, fellowship being restored, entering through the east. Jesus is gonna come back again. He's gonna set foot on the Mount of Olives and he's gonna come in through that east gate once again in Jerusalem. What a day that's going to be. So that gate here, about 30 feet long, it also had the familiar woven colors of blue, purple, scarlet, and white. Again, all pointing to Jesus. Blue, Jesus, again, came from heaven. Purple, he came to be our king. First, he would suffer and die, scarlet, and then as a, he would die as a, a righteous, pure sacrifice for us. But when we look at those in reverse, we begin to see what he's done for us. Where now we've been made righteous. And though for a time we might suffer, but we're being made into royal priesthood that we might live eternally with him in heaven. So again, it's a great reminder for us of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Verse 20, we look at the, the care of the lampstand now just in closing. And it says here, and you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So we see here, interestingly, that the people now the nation of Israel were to be the ones responsible for the light in the tabernacle continuing to shine. They were to provide the oil now for the lampstand that sat in the, the tabernacle in the, the holy place as he would first go into the tabernacle. Aaron and his sons would tend it, but the oil had to keep flowing by the people there. And the oil, of course, in scripture is a picture of the Holy Spirit. See, we need the continual flowing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If we're gonna be a witness, if we're gonna shine for Jesus, if we're gonna illuminate the darkness, my friends, we cannot go it alone. We need the Holy Spirit filling us, empowering us, energizing us to live this life. And what did the Holy Spirit come to do in the world? To testify of Jesus, to make him known. And if we're gonna make Jesus known in the world, which is exactly what the world needs to know, if we're gonna illuminate the darkness, we need that fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. We need to be so connected to the Spirit. That's why Ephesians 5.18 says, be continually filled, be ongoingly filled in and through the Holy Spirit. And notice this oil, it says in verse 20, came from oil of pressed olives for the light. You know, there are times where we may go through the ringer. 
We've been talking a bit about that on Sunday, haven't we? First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, where there are times we're gonna go through tribulations, which meant what? Pressing. But again, it's that we might know the Lord more and be comforted by him, that we might be a comfort to others, that we might be that witness of the wonderful work of Jesus. Second Corinthians four, verse eight. Well, actually, let me go back a little bit here. Second Corinthians four, verse seven. But we, now I'm gonna go back to verse six. Let's do that. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellence of the power of God or power maybe of God and not of us. Goes on to say we're, we're hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Verse 11, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Oh yeah, we might go through pressing, but like we said on Sunday, may that pressing lead us to press into the Lord all the more and to be filled even in a greater way in and of the Holy Spirit that we might shine even brighter for Jesus and make him known in a dark, dreary world that so desperately needs to hear the good news. God has made a way for us to worship him to be at peace with him, to enjoy his presence, not to shirk back in fear and wonder, but to draw near with boldness. The tabernacle pictures that for us. May we be those taking part in that and experiencing the beautiful, wonderful presence of God. You don't get to see the beauty of it from a distance, but when you draw near, you begin to see how wonderful it really is. Let's pray. The worship team is going to come and lead us in the tabernacle song. <laughs> Lord, thank you. God, that you have provided a way for us to be restored, reconciled, redeemed. Thank you that you desire to meet with us. And throughout scripture, there's that constant calling people, providing a way for people to be with you. And Lord, I pray that we'd be those that are so very thankful and indeed are not letting anything hinder us or get in the way from us drawing near to you and receiving all that you have for us. Just being in your presence, God, what a privilege we have today. And we know that's all because of your son. So we thank you for what you provided. May we live in you, empowered by your spirit, experiencing not only the glory of God for ourselves, but being a witness of the goodness of God to this world. So we pray you lead us, fill us, and strengthen us now tonight. We ask in your name, amen.